You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature. Part ape. Part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith. This week, I interview author Daniel Loxton about the final book in his trilogy of prehistoric animal tales, Plesiosaur Peril. It's a little different from your average Monster Talk as we discuss parenting, science literacy, tone, and the new Cosmos reboot. I hope you like it. But first... I want to tell you a little bit more about the Monster Talk cruise we're putting together. This October, we'll be sailing aboard the largest cruise ship in the world, the Princess of the Seas, to travel around the Bermuda Triangle and hang out with archaeologist Kenny Fader. We'll learn about the facts behind ancient astronauts and legends of Atlantis. We'll see beautiful ports of call. And, of course, we'll look for mermaids and sea serpents. It's the first Monster Talk cruise, and I hope you'll be able to join me. I think the price is quite reasonable for a week in the Caribbean. And can you really put a price tag on hearing Kenny Fader lecture uncensored? I'll put a link to the details in the show notes at monstertalk.org, or you can call 1-800-794-7447. Or you can email our experienced cruise director, Jeff Wag at jeff at collegeofcuriosity.com. Jeff has put together quite a few trips like this, but this is the very first one with Monster Talk, and I'm excited at the prospect of meeting some of you folks in person and hanging out to talk about monsters and mysteries on the open sea, and I hope you can join us. If you have questions, you can post them on the Monster Talk Facebook page, or you can tweet me at Dr. Atlantis. Speaking of which, some of you will be able to join me and Kenny Fader on a tour of the Atlantis Resort, which means you could take a picture of Dr. Atlantis at Atlantis with the most widely known Atlantis expert on this side of reality, Kenny Fader. If that doesn't trigger a Bermuda Triangle wormhole, I don't know what will. Really, I, I, don't, I don't know what will. Also, it's been a while since I've had to say this, but the audio this week is a bit off. I'm in the middle of moving into a new home office, and I didn't have my regular studio set up. It shouldn't be hard to understand, but you don't need to email me and let me know it's not up to my regular standards. I am on the case. Now, let's talk thrilling prehistoric animal books with Dan Loxton. 
Monster Talk. Well, I want to welcome back Daniel Loxton, who's the creator of Junior Skeptic, and most recently was on the show promoting his book, Abominable Science. But he's also the author of a book for children called Evolution. I say children, maybe uh, teens. And then he's got some actual children's book for children, children. And that's the technical term. Um, <laughs> he's got <laughs> Ankylosaur Attack, um, and Pterosaur Trouble, and now his newest one is called Plesiosaur Peril, which I guess completes your, what would you call that, like a trilogy? <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Okay. Yeah, they, uh, they're, they're low violence, but high jeopardy, so trilogy, that works. Yeah, I like that. You know, maybe low violence isn't even quite the right way. They're, well, they're low gore. They look, they, they had big pointy teeth and, and, they did. And the main characters seem to be in trouble <laughs> or peril. Yes, occasionally peril, sometimes trouble. But sometimes they just attack. attack. Yes. <laughs> well, first of all, they're beautiful books, but Thank what's you. the target audience here? They are children's books, uh, the kind of thing you could read to your little kids at bedtime. They're aimed for ages about four to seven. Um, they make a reasonable early reader for, for uh, slightly older kids, but, but really they're, they're meant to read with your children as you're curled up and hopefully their, their, uh, you know, the eyes should be peeking out under the covers as huge photorealist, full spread pictures of tyrannosaurus and leopardons loom over them menacingly. Yeah, they, they, they are really, really attractive pictures in here. And I realize the text is not super technical. You've sort of, presented an, an anthropic version of life in these ancient times. Well, hopefully not too much. You know, like, uh, I, I've gone as far out of my way as I can to present these is in a, uh, you know, grounded, science-informed way. So uh, Darren Nash, who you've uh, had on the show before, paleozoologist Darren Nash, uh, is the science consultant on Plesiosaur Peril, and uh, as he was previously on Pterosaur Trouble. Uh, and from the get-go, just, you know, figuring out these interactions of these prehistoric animals, uh, what kinds of activities are plausible, what kinds of uh, sequences, what what kind of animals lived at the same time, all those things have been checked. Uh, yeah, you, yeah, let me correct myself because I said anthropic. What I guess I meant was you've made it so that the reader will want to care about what happens oh, to the protagonist. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tight line to walk. Uh you know, you, you want to be able to identify with these characters, but I don't want to turn them into cartoon characters. Right. I would know, say so. these are probably more scientifically uh, uh, documentarian in style than, say, the new Walking with Dinosaurs, which had great information, but was much more about talking dinosaurs. And that's not what you are. <laughs> so. Yeah, the animals don't talk in these stories. And I've, I've tried hard to avoid, um, you know, like describing... Uh, internal mental states that these animals might not have had. Um, as much as possible, I try to describe what things that are going on in terms of the actions that are unfolding. Uh, but, I, you know, if, if the story is told, told well, and, and hopefully they are, uh, then uh, little kids should be carried along with the drama. They should identify with our protagonists here. Particularly, uh, you know, the, the little girl in Plesiosaur Peril, a little, little female Plesiosaur, uh, is, is a, you know, she's kind of a plucky heroine to to root along for so you introduce cool concepts like uh gastroliths which we talked about before on monster talk but you don't really make it hard to understand they just eat some rocks because <laughs> <laughs> yeah i try to you know I, I try to feed in as much of these kind of uh, uh behaviors uh you know these grounded science-based uh you know the kinds of behaviors we can 
infer from the fossil record. I, you know, I feed those into the story. The stories are only about a thousand words long, though, and then I have about two hundred pages of or two hundred words of uh, of nonfiction exposition at the end of the story to try and explain how we made some of those editorial decisions. Um, but yeah, you've got a, a thousand words to develop characters, set the scene, describe some activities, have a conflict, reach a resolution, and also feed in some some. Uh, Non nonfiction science along the way, so it's a very, very dense, carefully pruned uh, kind of uh, storytelling. I think you did it deftly, though. I think the the artwork, especially, conveys a lot of drama, yet at the same time morphological accuracy. They look cool, Daniel. <laughs> I tried to make them look cool. They look so that, cool, that, that, and they, that's it, what I was going. It's for. fun to look at, and I think kids are going to love them. I, I, so I. Uh, so as a parent who's trying to raise uh, children in an environment that promotes uh, scientific literacy, yeah. I think these are a great addition to the library. What age am I looking at here? What, what, what kind of age kid do you think this is for? These are about ages four to seven. Okay. Uh, my, uh, my other uh, children's book, Evolution, the non, non children, nonfiction children's book, is a little bit older. That's like eight to twelve. Uh, Junior Skeptic, the 10 page uh, kid science section I do for Skeptic Magazine, that is about, I, I aim it for myself at, a, at age 12. Nice. And, uh, and then, of course, I write for adults as well. So I, I've, I've written for a pretty broad spread now. And I'll tell you, the younger you go, the harder it gets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, these, when, I mean, even writing for Junior Skeptic, which is written for fairly, you know, fairly advanced readers. Um, you can't take it for granted that your audience knows that there is a thing called France or that, <laughs> or that you know, the mammals are different from reptiles or whatever like this. You know, you have to, you have to spell out a lot of stuff and you can't load it down with a lot of jargon either, a lot of names and dates. No, you know what? I think you hit a really nice sweet spot here because, um, when you have to read to your children, the, the hardest thing in dinosaur books can be all the names of the creatures, but you, yeah. you only include a few creature names. But lots of easy action words. And the pictures themselves convey lots and lots of... It's almost like the pictures themselves are worth many words. <laughs> <laughs> some, some large number some of words. Some big number of words. but big. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I'm an old-fashioned comic book fan. I, uh, you know, if, you, if I had picked my life goals, uh, I originally thought maybe Monster Hunter and then comic book artist, and it was quite a few steps down the road before I got to professional skeptic and children's book illustrator. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that comic book background, that I think that helps for, for storytelling purposes. Yeah, well, haven't you in some measure achieved those goals, though? I mean, aren't you also... <laughs> <laughs> I, I am sort of a Monster Hunter. Right, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah, there is that. I tell my kids that and they don't believe me. And I'm like, I swear, no, really. <laughs> I'll look for monsters and I look for ghosts. I do, I do. I would, I would do anything to be able to phone up myself in, in grade six and like explain how these, these things turn out because he would be thrilled. <laughs> yeah. I would probably be hanging out in the Machosen Elementary School Library reading books about Loch Ness Monster and I would have some pretty sad news to tell young Daniel Ness <laughs> monster but uh, I think he would be pretty excited to hear how uh, the, the whole career thing works out yeah and, and the family and everything I mean it's, it's all good oh so. sure yeah <laughs> but yeah I would I would be all over that if I could call myself in the past I, I would be very excited and then I'd also tell myself not to eat so much 
(laughs) (laughs) Don't stop running. Just keep doing that. It'll help. (laughs) These are targeted for people who would want their kids to have some science literacy, I imagine. I mean, they are good stories on their own, but I imagine that your target audience is not so much the children as the parents because kids hardly have any incomes these days. It's true. It's true. And uh, that, that does make it kind of a, a marketing challenge. Sure. Uh, um, yeah, uh, our colleague Mary Claire Shanahan uh, wrote a wonderful guest post over at Scientific American Blogs when Ankylosaur Attack came out uh, talking about it, – it's still up. You can look it up. Uh, talking about how a book like this offers a really great opportunity to have a conversation about science and, and nature with your children. And it's been my experience making them too, you know, like my son who's, who's eight now, he helps me create these, these, uh, dinosaur books. He has all the way along. So, you know, if, if, uh, in these, these illustrations, they combine in a complex way, uh, computer generated creatures with photorealistic, photo based backgrounds. Um, to make those really seamless and realistic, um, the interactions you see are, Generally, there are things that have really happened. So, like, if an animal makes a splash in the water, well, that splash had to be created somehow. And in many cases, it's because my eight-year-old spent three hours hucking rocks at the water for me to photograph. <laughs> so, you know, these are a wonderful kind of uh, uh, family project, even just making them, talking about, you know, it, it tries trying to put yourself back into this world that was our world and yet not our world. You know, the, an alien world right here on Earth. Uh, that that is a remarkable thing. It really is. Um, <laughs> I watch a lot of uh, documentaries about uh, dinosaurs and just animal life in general. I've always been a big biology fan. Even on Earth now, there's places that seem pretty alien compared to where we live, and it's just you know it's always important to to get those pieces of information into your head. You know, just even at a really young age to imagine because without that, your your imagination is kind of limited to only what you've seen. You know. Um, and there's lots of, I think, value in exploring what the past was like, what creatures were like, how things might be in the future, because uh, things do change, as your evolution book kind of points out. So, <laughs> <laughs> and those, you know, those alien worlds when you're trying to share them with, well, I mean, first of all, trying to wrap your own head around them, but also share them with your children. You know, it's, you know, the the future is an alien world, the past is an alien world at every step, but also there are, you know, alien worlds of scale, like the ecology going on in your eyebrows right now. <laughs> It might not bear too much thinking about, but it's alien and it's lively and it's going on every day. Yeah, I have big eyebrows too. So there's yeah, of- mine are getting bigger. <laughs> <a little. laughs> you know, you're a skeptical activist. In fact, um, one of the ones I really admire. So how does that figure into, if you don't mind talking about it, like at least parenting and, and child education in your own life? Well, it's just, you know, it's entwined through every part of my life. The lessons of science and of scientific skepticism, uh, these are lessons which are really broadly applicable, you know, that, that things are not always what they seem. And more than that, that things are not always what they seem to you, <laughs> you know, that, that we are fundamentally limited in our ability to know, that we at the same time are standing on the edge of this vast landscape of possibility in our limited ability to know. We can find out so many things and yet we'll always be so uncertain. And, you know, these, these are, these are lessons which are, you know, well within the reach of a five-year-old or a six-year-old or an eight-year-old. Uh, these are, 
These are ideas which are which are exciting to share. Carl Carl Sagan said kids can understand some some pretty deep things, and uh, that's true. Uh, and you know, as a parent, it's it's fun to just you know just floor it. <laughs> kids can generally keep up because uh, you know I'm I'm not that bright. I'm certainly not brighter than your average eight year old. I struggle because when I was uh, in my late twenties, I had sort of crept into skepticism after butting my head against research that never came up with answers. I mean, it just came up with more and more mysteries. And as I started to explore the idea of actually getting solutions to the mysteries, I found this whole world of people who had been researching using scientific methodology instead of just, you know, chasing the next mystery. It changed my life pretty significantly, at least. uh, Like, it changed my outlook about what the meaning of life is and you know how yeah. people interact and I began to study psychology and neurology and all kinds of information about human behaviors and bias and memory and eventually I, I I found myself in a completely different mindset than I had been for most of my life and now if I live long enough maybe there'll be a point when I've lived more of my life as a sort of rationalist but I wish I had known about this stuff when I was younger because there were so many things, I, I don't want to say I wasted time on them, but I guess I did. And I didn't have to. I mean, they were fun to wonder about, but I didn't need to wonder for 12 years or 15 years. I could have, <laughs> you know, wondered a year or a month or two and then, you know, dug up an answer. So. Well, I'm still wondering about them. So I, you know, is, is there any investment in paranormal that's really too great? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I still, you know, I still find, so I have children now, my own, right? And they want to know, are these things real? And I'm like, well, yeah. I don't want to just jump to the answer. First of all, I want, I want you to think about, could they be real? You know, I want to think about what's being claimed. What have you actually heard? It's amazing how many things they're picking up. You know where they pick up most of their stories? Not from the library, although they do bring home a lot of interesting books from the same sections I used to read. <laughs> but they're picking up stuff on YouTube. Um, yeah. they're coming home with stories about, uh, uh, sort of folklore monsters from video games. Uh, <laughs> just think, you know, there's this character called Hero Brian, and they know about Slender Man. It's, it's strange stuff that they know about that that aren't uh, part of much uh, of the kind of books I read, but the same vein. You know what I mean? So, yeah, um, yeah that kind of folklore. Pete's. You know what I want to give them is the tool set for how to evaluate, and and, and I think that's what you know scientific skepticism really provides. Although that's not what these books are about, these are more about science literacy. Yeah, but yeah. but well, you know the, the 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 lesson of science when um, when when we're appreciating just how much there is to know about the universe, how much there is to know about our own world or even our own bodies. The lesson of scientific skepticism when we're appreciating just how easy it is to be misled, how many opportunities there are, how often we're misled individually. The lessons of all those things are the same, really, to me. Uh, which is about humility. You know, it just, all those lessons call us to be less sure about things, less certain about things, and to be more, more careful and more aware that we will, we will frequently be wrong. And, and these are lessons that are, in my opinion, they, they lead us to be more kind, uh, they can. Um, as a parent, I hope that they will, uh, <laughs> lead, lead my children to be good people. But, to a large extent, it's, it's, you know, these are ideas that you can try on and 
appreciate in a fairly deep way when you're eight. But at the same time, humility is something you have to learn with with experience, too. Yeah. So we give them the seeds, we give them the tools, we give them the experience of trying these things on, but they're going to have to stumble a lot of times before they, <laughs> before they stop being the center of their own universes. You know? I think it's one of the unfortunate conditions of being a parent is you've learned things. You've learned them, and in, in your brain somewhere, in your system, you've got pain to back up the bad mistakes and pleasure yeah. to back up the good ones. And yeah. no story you can tell... <laughs> Will convey those as well as their own success and failure, and it's 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 really sad because you want so much for them not to have to go through that to learn the lessons. Yeah, oh, it's so hard. But you know, one of the things that we can provide as parents and as as skeptical activists and as you know, science outreach uh, communicators uh, is an awareness that when these things happen to them, that they are not the first, you know, that they are not alone in being duped or they're not alone in finding themselves smaller than they thought they were or, <laughs> you know, these, these kinds of things. Well, you know, it's funny because my, one of my children, I'm not going to say which, but one of my children, when she was, let's see, she must have been five or six, she had her first experience with explosive diarrhea. And so she knew she had to go potty, but she was potty trained and, she was just freaking out because she never felt like this before. So she goes to the restroom, and we, my wife pulls off and goes to a restaurant, runs into the bathroom with her. And she sits down, and she goes through this horrible experience of explosive diarrhea. And then she's, like, sitting there on the toilet, and she looks at my wife. She says, this has never happened to anyone before. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife patted her on the head and said, baby, this has happened to everyone before. <laughs> it's like, but it was so funny to hear her say that, just... Yeah. You know, she thought the you know. Well, I, I remember you know I remember being a kid and we found some worms in a mud puddle one time and they were just regular earthworms but they'd been in the mud puddle for a long time and they were kind of translucent you know. Ooh wow! Also, and so we thought we had in, we had discovered a new kind of worm and <laughs> and we were gonna you know like if if you remember Monster Squad the little kid writes a letter dear Army guys come quick there are monsters right. uh, we were the same we were gonna, you know dear scientists come quick there is a new kind of worm and not only that we saw a pterodactyl fly over our house and, <laughs> and, and uh, yeah those it turns out that those kinds of experiences are not they were not unique to us uh, other people had seen worms and. and Blue herons before us, and uh, and other people have been mistaken before us. Oh wow! Yeah, I love blue herons; are so beautiful. I saw oh, one are. crash into a fence this past weekend. That's yeah, a, that's too too bad for him. Well, he lived. I, I actually went to go pull him off the fence because he looked like he was stuck. And by the time I got back to him, um, he had managed to get off the fence and kind of recover. Um, but it he flew away, so I was good for him. I took a little video of it. I was gonna try to video me rescuing him and I didn't have to. So my YouTube fame's lost again. <laughs> so if you, if you take him and blow him up to the size of a giraffe, yeah. <laughs> then, then you have the, uh, the pterosaur protagonist of pterosaur trouble. My, my second, uh, second tales of prehistoric life book. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved. We are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. They are beautiful. I, I, I wish they were still around. I don't know what that would do for the economy or, or the, or the ecology. Which you know. <laughs> yeah, it would be, it would be neat. Well, you know, as, as your audience knows, there are, there are still, uh, zoologists looking for them. So who knows? Maybe they'll turn up again. Maybe we'll see. Yeah, so, maybe. but speaking of scientific literacy, oh, first of all, I, I think, okay. I think scientific literacy is very important and not just in a, uh, bar trivia sort of way. I think ultimately the more you know about how the world really works, the better informed you are for making all kinds of political and uh, policy and social choices. Um, right now, as of like last night, the, there's a new thing going on on television, the, the Cosmos TV show, the new edition with Neil deGrasse Tyson hosting it uh, has come out. Yeah. And I know that you, we, <laughs> we were talking about this last night. You uh, were watching this with your son. And I plan to watch it with my kids later. But uh, what did you think? It was it was fantastic. It was really beautiful. It was uh, it was moving, and it you know it, it sets up the rest of the miniseries in a really strong way. I can't wait to see what they do with the rest of it. And and I think that they have done a really admirable job of picking up the mantle from from Carl Sagan. I mean, I mean, you were, you were just talking a second ago about the kind of policy. Uh, questions uh, about science literacy, and and that was Sagan's uh, Sagan's kind of central idea in his his outreach. He, on the one hand, he thought that understanding our place in the universe was just kind of the birthright of every human being that we deserve to know that that John John Jane Doe uh, they deserve to know where they stand in space and time, <laughs> right. Um, but he also he was really worried about the kind of policy issues. He was worried about nuclear winter and, and global warming and, and uh, many of these kind of big scientific uh, challenges coming up. He was worried about the idea that that the, our entire global civilization is so dependent on science and technology that nobody understands. <laughs> you know, and uh, and he, th- he described that as a powder keg. He, he thought it could be really dangerous, and so he he was hoping to make the world safer by doing science outreach. That he could make citizens more responsible. Um, if there's any chance of that in a project like like Cosmos, then uh, you know it, it's a it's a project that earns its keep immediately. Yeah. And, you know, and the audience of Fox Television, those are the people who who, uh, as much as anyone, uh, need those need those uh, that kind of scientific perspective. In a sense, uh, I think within skepticism, a lot of people rail against nonsense. Um, but there are lots of people who would just be science cheerleaders and, and they rail for the progress 
and um, I guess promulgation of, of scientific information, right? So um, I, I think I'm in that camp. I, I think I'd rather, instead of spending a lot of time worrying too much about what's wrong, I, you know, wherever I can, you know, give good answers that people can find, but also promote the best in that approach. And um, I hope I get there. That. There are cases, you know, when we're looking at, at these big policy issues, you know, if you're looking at, at global warming or you're looking at uh, immunization against infectious disease, um, there, there are places where, where kind of interventions are, if you, if you, if there are ways to do an intervention that makes the, the public more aware, then, then that seems to me like it's a, an ethically appropriate thing to do. Sure, sure. But in many cases, you know, the kinds of things we're looking at, like, like whether or not there's a Bigfoot, it really, it matters, you know, if like almost 20% of the population, uh, in most polls will say that they, you know, will affirm a, a belief in Bigfoot. It's it's a non-trivial question at that point, but it's not going to bring around the end of global civilization. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's a relatively uh, harmless kind of a claim. Um, so then you you have to look at other kinds of justifications, and and they're the justifications that scholarship looks to in general. That here is a question which is interesting to people. Here is an opportunity to learn something about it. Here is an opportunity to make it available for the people who are interested. Well, I, I think what you've done with Junior Skeptic is a great example of um, a fun way to approach it without uh, having to deal with some of the dramatic sides. I mean, there are people out there fighting for really important causes, uh, people promoting uh, science and medicine. I, I'm not trying to belittle those things in any way. I think those are really important. I think just my place, my niche, is I like um, I like monsters and... <laughs> <laughs> I, I like well, I like I like promoting science. So what I've tried to do with this show is it, this show is I hope not always. I think people who don't listen to it assume it's just the Bigfoot bashing show. But what I really like to do is promote scientific literacy by using monsters as a topic springboard. Right. So makes a great hook, and I mean, and it <clears throat> it worked on me. I I came to science and skepticism as someone who was, uh, you know, I I'd had. We had a good attitude towards science in my family, but we were definitely on the way over on the paranormal side, and I was personally right into every kind of x files mystery you can imagine. And uh, uh, those topics were the topics that led me to be a science writer now. Um, yeah. So, you know, they, it can, it can uh, be a really positive thing in people's lives. It, you know, it really depends. Well, that's, yeah, I totally agree with that. And. Again, these are beautiful books. So if I'm a Thank parent you. and I want to get one of these books, or all three, yeah. the whole yeah. trilogy. Get how do three I go of each of them. Yeah. <laughs> or nine, um, right? <laughs> yeah. They they are in stock at Amazon and Amazon.ca. We have them in stock over at skeptic.com, uh, where you can find out more about my own work as well as uh, the rest of my work with Junior Skeptic. Um, any larger bookseller should have them and uh, if you have the opportunity to order it through one of your local smaller booksellers, mom and pop shop, please do because those guys always always need your support. So, um, yeah, it's re- readily available. They're all easy to find anywhere in North America. You've been talking oh. about the Carl Sagan special thing that you've been doing. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We have just in the last last week's e skeptic, we announced uh, the upcoming, uh, or I guess now available in digital and about to hit stores in print format. Uh, the fiftieth. Uh, issue of Junior Skeptic, uh, bound into Skeptic Volume Nineteen, Number One. Oh yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, and this is on Carl Sagan, so it's a it's a timely issue. And 
you know, 50 is a nice round number to celebrate. I've been doing Junior Skeptic for over a decade now, and there's just no more kind of uh, uplifting uh, uh, example to look to in skepticism than Carl Sagan. And, and for people who are Carl Sagan fans or who have been refreshing just recently with all the the kind of Sagan legacy uh, remembrance, which is going on in the media right now. Uh, to a large extent, Sagan's life in skepticism has been downplayed uh, by his biographers, um, partly because our topics just seem super fringe to most people. <laughs> they seem like a footnote to people, or they seem like a sideline to people. Um, but Sagan was involved in paranormal mysteries uh, from childhood right up to the grave. It was it was a major thread through his intellectual career, uh, and it was a real joy for me to be able to be able to explore that in Junior Skeptics. So we talk about you know I talk about his life, uh, lifelong interest in UFOs and his discovery his discovery of the uh, of the skeptical literature as a young UFO enthusiast. Uh, he discovered Martin Gardner and, and uh, Charles McKay, classic Neat. skeptics books by them. Yeah, and they changed his life. It was the same kind of light bulb moment that you and I <laughs> experienced. It happened to Carl Sagan too, and and then he became a uh, an activist uh, skeptic, uh, specializing in UFO claims. Although he also did a lot of other stuff too. Um, but uh, through the '60s, he was involved in. Uh, trials to do with UFO uh, fraud. He was uh, he was involved in evaluating Project Blue Book. He testified before Congress about UFOs, um, and uh, and and most of his books uh, cover these kind of paranormal topics, uh, from dreams that seem to foretell the future to astral projection. To he spent a lot of time on Emanuel Velikovsky and ancient astronaut type stuff. Uh, alien abduction. He was he, <laughs> he was personal friends with John Mack, the Harvard psychi- psychiatrist who was so central to uh, uh, the alien abduction literature. Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, they were actually arrested together. <laughs> one time. Yeah, they they, uh, they were arrested together at a uh, protest against uh, nuclear testing. Wow. And uh, and when uh, Mack started getting into the alien abduction stuff, uh, Sagan like did a like a personal intervention. He went and talked to him and said, "Look, you know, I've looked into this stuff, and there's not much to it. Uh, I think you're getting taken for a ride." It was not enough to turn Mack away from the kind of visceral believability of the abductees, whose stories are very persuasive and uh, who are generally sincere people. Right. That's the thing. It's it's. The question of whether or not they're true could be a separate question from do they believe these things happen? That's the thing. Deeply held beliefs are not easy to let go of, even in the face of uh, lack of evidence. Or When someone tells you a story about something that happened to them and, so, you know, a major life-altering event that happened to them, something they saw with their own eyes, you yep. know, which they experienced with their own body, it's, it's very hard to dismiss that kind of testimony. Well, even if you, well, even when it's happening to me, like people who tell me about their Bigfoot yeah. experiences, I feel sure. like, well, I'm, I wish I had been there too. But, <laughs> I mean, because it sounds really awesome. I mean, it, but it, it always sounds like a religious conversion story. I mean, it's like a very spiritual experience for them. And, yeah, and for many people, literally, you know, yeah. yeah, you can't talk somebody out of that if it's happened to them. It's really, <laughs> really something they're going to have to work on themselves. Um, well, Sagan gave it a shot with with Mac, 
Yeah, it, uh, it was it was a real pleasure at this moment when so many people are thinking back on Sagan's life uh, to be able to concentrate on this particular aspect. And um, people have been involved in movement skepticism for a long time. Uh, Sagan, he he was involved in this stuff before there was a skeptics movement, and then he was involved in the founding of the first uh, kind of organized skeptics group in North America. And very interestingly, I've I've always thought <coughs> his first act in organized skepticism uh, was. Uh, uh, a, a kind of a, a, a tone problem. He uh, abstained from really the first organized skeptical activist intervention project, uh, which was this uh, petition called Objections to Astrology. And uh, Sagan refused to sign it, even though a number of his friends and colleagues and uh, a number of Nobel laureates uh, signed this thing, and even though it was put together by a friend of his that he respected, uh, Sagan just couldn't bring himself to sign it because it seemed to him to be authoritarian and shallow. Wow. So, you know, he came into organized skeptic skepticism as an experienced activist in this area, and he remained a th- kind of a thought leader through it um, until his, his death in 96. And, and along the way, he just kept hammering the same point over and over again about uh, being humble about what we can know and extending that kind of personal humility to our dealings with paranormalists, you know, people who are, for the most part, they have motivations which are, you know, consonant with the, the, the goals of science, uh, people who are trying to understand the world just like we are. So, I mean, uh, spread truth, solve mysteries, but, you know, wherever you can, give people a break, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, know? I wonder how, I mean, you know, he's grown in stature since he passed. In some ways, yeah. in some ways, uh, but you know, there are people entering university right now who were not alive when Sagan died. That's you preposterous. <laughs> it is preposterous. <laughs> it makes me feel extremely old and, and increasingly bald. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, there are a lot of people uh, for whom he is, you know, a fairly recent influential figure. But there are a lot of other people now. Uh, uh, who will increasingly be influential in the years ahead, for whom he's just a historical figure, a kind of footnote. Um, and so you see a little backlash now in, in the, you know, the, the newer generation of science communicators who are a little sick of hearing about Sagan and his influence. Ah. Well, so I, I guess my, my generation, he would have been the guy. And then, yeah. like, right after, <laughs> right after me, Bill Nye became the guy. Yeah. And then I guess uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's the guy now. Yeah, he's the best best available figure to, to yeah. pick up that work and continue it. I don't know how that works. I assume they have a sword they pass or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I assume so. I assume so. <laughs> he holds that up in the last episode of Cosmos. I've heard, heard how it ends. <laughs> I really enjoy the original Cosmos. I'm surprised after having rewatched it a few years ago that my parents actually let me watch it because uh, – much of the content was counter to our fundamentalist Baptist uh, sort of belief system. Um, but yeah, Sagan had a way of breaking down those kind of barriers, you know, uh, partly just by being nice to people and being forthright and and uh, uh, not going deliberately out of his way to provoke people. A lot of challenging ideas, not a lot of attitude. I can't remember if they watched past the first episode with me. I know the first episode. I may also have helped. <laughs> <laughs> it may have been they realized that I was going to sit there and not move, so they didn't really have to be there. I don't know. So, 
it was a very interesting passage. Uh, you'll have to let me know what you think about it when you see it. But um, they, he, they, right in the first episode, they explore this conflict between science and religion. And the uh, the figure they they choose is a religious visionary. And the the kind of editorial point of of Cosmos there uh, is not that there is a conflict between science and religion. In fact, uh, you know, for many people, millions of people, billions of people, maybe uh, science is a you know, is part of the grounding of their spiritual understanding. Um, the the conflict is between the wish to find out and the freedom to explore, and those people who uh, whose thinking is too small for that. So I'm reading this book called The Master Switch by a guy named Tim Wu, and in the book, it's about the rise and fall of information empires, and he talks about this thing that happens that when you get a monopoly. Uh, of a technology that you you basically stifle innovation because you become afraid that some new idea will come along that will destroy this monopoly that you have, and I think that which eventually it does. Well, 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 it, it's <laughs> inevitable often, that it does. It's yeah, inevitable yeah. that it does. And what what the point is though that everybody struggles. So like for in the, in the book they talk about in particular like AT and T, they had an answering machine in the 1930s that used magnetic tape. But they stifled it. In fact, nobody even knew about it until historians found out about it in doing archive research um, 60 years later. Because they were afraid that magnetic tape and being able to record calls would cause people to stop using the telephone so much. Right? <laughs> I mean, but that idea is true in religion and anything like that. You want to kind of keep out ideas that might overturn the paradigm. Um, you, so... Which I think is cool or interesting about the scientific methodology because the whole idea of science is that not that it is a pristine and true and factual thing, but it's a methodology for determining what's true and what's not true or what's fact yeah. or what, what, what works and what doesn't work, I guess maybe a better way of saying it. Um, but that you find mistakes and you out the mistakes and you replace them with what does work because that's the whole point. And I don't know why that even now there's still people who think that that scientists are afraid of change and scientists are afraid. It's like that's what they all want. They all want to be the guy who, or girl who discovers some new paradigm shifting piece of information or, or hypothesis or something, you know. So, well, I mean, in 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 fairness to that argument, you know, uh, there at any given moment there are a vast, you know, there's a vast generation of young scientists coming up who are young gunslingers and they could take somebody down and it would make their career. Absolutely. Um, uh, older scientists have the opportunity to, to do that kind of gunslinging too. And if they make a big breakthrough discovery, something that overturns something important, even sacred to people, uh, that'll be awesome for them. But they also are very invested. Oh yeah, that's true. And the work, <laughs> and the work they've spent their life building, well, yeah, and, uh, and that's bias. That you've got to overcome that, right, right? Right. And and it's and it's effectively impossible to overcome. This is this is you know what economics has learned. It's the lesson that that uh, skeptics uh, say we have learned, but in fact have not. Uh, <laughs> that really there is no overcoming bias. There is uh, working with it. There is working through it. 
There is right. putting in enough time to get past it. Being aware but there is of no it, right? being without bias. <laughs> right. Being aware I, of it does not necessarily make you less. Exactly. Less I think biased. I said that it almost like, is it being aware of it's not proof against it, right? So yeah, exactly. Yeah, so so. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a struggle, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so, sorry, kids. Reality is hard. It is hard. Human but, nature. But is you're bad. right, though. People yeah. who who have have a hypothesis and they make their career on it, they certainly have a vested interest in not having that change. So it's rare that you hear about scientists who are famous for some theory or another uh, who, in the face of a new one, are able to accept it. It's been postulated that some people have to die. Regeneration has to die in order for the new theory to win, right? I, I hope that's not really true in practice. It may turn out to be statistically true just because people have a finite life. But... <laughs> is different about science though is that when people do uh, say gosh you know sorry my life's work uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time but now we know more and I was really on the wrong track uh, when, in those cases where somebody does say that we really admire it those are those that is a praiseworthy moment in the the life of anyone who achieves it <laughs> it is it's, it's it's not the kind of thing people tend to remember or note uh, but you're right it is a big deal it should be more celebrated of course also, things that don't work are often also useful information. So sure. much time is wasted reproducing the errors that other people have done, but you didn't know about. <laughs> so. I haven't, I haven't failed. I've found a thousand ways that don't work. Right. Yes. And that, that's really, uh, I, I think we're on the cusp of, of a world where some of that goes away, where I think they're still kind of hammering out the journalistic process. Uh, maybe some of the file drawer effect will disappear. As some of the incentives for only publishing, you know, successes uh, disappear. So, yeah, there are, there are definitely still reforms to to happen, and you know, it's just an ongoing process. As long as there are people, as long as there are science, which is really a very young endeavor, like four hundred years old, uh, even less, depending how you you measure this. You know, as long as the this continues to develop, we'll we'll find ways to reform it and refine it, and we'll find ways to screw it up again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we'll we'll continue to move forward and explore the universe. And well, I at think the end of the day, we'll know more than we used to know. And and to do that, we need to get our children to be scientifically literate. And to do that, God, they, need the, they, they need the right kind of storybook. They do need the right kind of storybooks with the right kind of pictures. And one more time, that's uh, Plesiosaur Peril, and you can get it by going Peril? to Plesiosaur Peril. Oh, and it's a trilogy again. Pterosaur trouble. <laughs> and what did you say? Ankylosaur. Weird. Ankylosaur. Attack, is it really yeah. ankylosaur? Have I been saying ankylosaur for the wrong, like for my entire life, wrongly? Well, you know what really messes me up is that for all these things, there is like a UK and an American way of pronouncing them. It's like aluminium. And <laughs> that's true. That's true. But I can't so call Pterosaurus rex ankylosaur biters or ankle biters, right? <laughs> uh, unless it's an ankle so sore. So I, right. I don't know. If you're going to ruin a pun, you can just get off my show. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, uh, go to the show notes, click the link, buy this for yourself or your children or your friends who have children or for your library or for a sick person in the hospital or for old people who don't like long books anymore. Thanks for joining us once again on Monster Talk, Daniel. A show without your help that wouldn't even be here. I mean, it would well, be here, you. but nobody would have heard of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be back on the show. Uh, it's it's honestly it's my favorite podcast. So you know, keep making them, and and uh, please keep inviting me back. Monster dog.
Thanks for listening to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and you just heard an interview with author Dan Loxton discussing the final book in his children's trilogy, Plesiosaur Peril. I hope you'll get a copy for a child in your life. Check the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, but the opinions expressed here are those of myself and my guests and don't necessarily represent the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. And stay tuned, I've got some interviews coming up that I've been trying to book since this show started. Could we finally be hearing about giant snakes? It sure looks like it. And what about alien big cats? I think so. Keep watching your feed. And thanks to all the folks who have gone to iTunes to give us a review. It's free, it really helps promote the show, and I enjoy rating them. Do you have a question for Monster Talk? Send me an email. Try Blake at monstertalk.org. It'll go right in my inbox. Give it a try. And come check out our Facebook page. If you use Facebook, just search for Monster Talk and ask to join the group. Thanks again for listening. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Again, thank you so much for... Go ahead, sorry. Let's start it all over again. Thanks for... (laughs) (laughs) it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.